Hey, Footnote listeners. This episode was originally broadcast on the great show Life of the Law, which takes a 360 view of our legal system. They were kind enough to let me rebroadcast it here for you. I hope you enjoy, and as always, let's get started. Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. The Congress decided we have to give Supreme Court justices something to do. You know, the trouble with with seeing people up too close is you see their flaws. And so it's kind of nice to have them sitting up there wearing black robes. I'm Emily Gaddick. Being a Supreme Court justice used to be a part-time job. When they weren't hearing cases in the Capitol, justices traveled as much as 10,000 miles a year, working as circuit court judges. In those days, the lower courts were just getting organized, and there weren't very many appeals. And it's almost like the Congress decided we have to give Supreme Court justices something to do. Professor Jim O'Hara is from the Supreme Court Historical Society. He says this system also let the justices act as emissaries of the new federal government, teaching the country how the federal system worked. Remember, the country was new, and they were working under a new constitution, which had to be explained. And it helped justices learn state law. Here's how it worked. For the first 100 years or so after the U.S. became a country, federal courtrooms came to you. Judges, government attorneys, and private lawyers all traveled together from town to town to hold trials. Starting in 1790, every Supreme Court justice was assigned a circuit of several states and spent most of the year traveling around to hear cases there. The rest of the year, he spent back in the Capitol, hearing appeals that made it to the Supreme Court. For Congress, it was a win-win. Because, among other things, it saved money since the justices essentially did two jobs for only one salary. Even then, Congress was worried about money. But O'Hara, the historian, says that for justices, doing double duty was sheer misery. Justice John Marshall. Appointed by John Adams in 1801, the fourth chief justice and the longest serving justice in history. On one occasion, while he was traveling in a in a carriage. The carriage overturned, and the Chief Justice of the United States broke his collarbone. Justice Samuel Chase. Popularly known as Old Bacon Face, and the only justice ever to be impeached, was another early justice. He had an even rougher time than Marshall. Chase was traveling from Baltimore to Wilmington, Delaware. He had to cross a large river. This was in the middle of the winter. So he got on a raft. He slipped, and he fell into the Susquehanna River and had to be fished out. Imagine the indignity. But crossing a frozen Susquehanna River was nothing compared with getting to California. Like Justice Stephen Johnson Field, a man appointed by Abraham Lincoln in 1863. 
and known for the coat he had designed with extra-large pockets to carry two pistols in. And he was expected to go from Washington to California to hear cases. He'd catch a boat, usually in Baltimore. Uh, ultimately sailed down uh, the east coast of the United States to Panama, get off the boat, travel across Panama, initially by burrow or by jackass, and, or later by a small train. Then sail up the California coast to San Francisco and spend the next three months roaming around California. Justices could be away from home for more than six months at a time. They earned a lot less than they would have as lawyers in private practice. And to add insult to injury, they were expected to pay out of pocket for their travel. So it's not surprising Congress and the Supreme Court spent much of the 1800s arguing about circuit riding. Justices frequently petitioned Congress to end the practice, or at the very least, to pay their travel expenses. But keeping justices on the circuit was one of the very few things Congress could always agree on. Here's how Senator William Allen from Ohio defended the practice before the Senate in 1848. They had better not separate the judges for an hour from circuit duties and direct intercourse with the people of the state. That is the only feature in the system which connects them with the nation. And if that be struck out, the striking out of the court will follow as naturally as the snuffing of a candle issues in darkness. Allen would probably have been appalled by today's court, with its closed-door deliberations and low-profile justices, who hardly seem to exist outside of the Supreme Court building, let alone travel the country, rubbing shoulders with the people. I'm Bruce Rogo from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and uh, I've practiced law for about 49 years. Rogo has argued before the Supreme Court 11 times on everything from misdemeanor suspects right to an attorney to the right of two live crew to parody Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman. But he's only occasionally met justices socially. Once in a while, he would see Justice Blackman eating breakfast in the Supreme Court cafeteria before a case. He thinks justices should be distant. You know, the trouble with with seeing people up too close is you see their flaws. And so it's kind of nice to have them sitting up there wearing black robes. And uh, and, and so you have this idealized picture of them. It probably is not so accurate, but uh, like like any kind of fantasy, better to keep it a fantasy. Oftentimes, uh, the reality doesn't live up to the fantasy. Back in the day, justices were anything but distant. Justices and lawyers on the circuit didn't just travel together. They ate together. Mm. They shared rooms and sometimes even beds. Good night. Good night. They formed close friendships. Abraham Lincoln met one of his closest friends, a judge named David Davis, when he was a circuit-riding lawyer in Illinois. When Lincoln became president, he nominated Davis to the Supreme Court, where he served for 14 years. That intimacy also created problems, though. Or it would have by today's standards, anyway. A justice wasn't expected to accuse himself from Supreme Court cases that came up through his circuit, even if he had heard an earlier appeal on the case, or when a lawyer he knew from the road argued before the court. 
Today, there are rules about when a justice should exclude him or herself from a case because of a conflict of interest. And when they don't, people sometimes complain. Vice President Cheney and Justice Antonin Scalia are friends and hunting buddies, but to many experts, their last trip crossed an ethical line. According to the Los Angeles Times, Scalia last month flew on Air Force Two with the vice president from Washington to Patterson, Louisiana, where they then spent several days duck hunting deep in the bayou. Which would not be a problem, except that the vice president has a case pending at the Supreme Court. After that trip in 2004, Justice Scalia wrote a 21-page memo defending his decision. Tony Morrow has been covering the Supreme Court as a reporter since the 1970s. He says today's justices sometimes take that separation too far. It's a sort of self-imposed isolation, which I think they would justify is necessary because they want to retain their independence and impartiality. The downside is that they really are not of the people. Even in their own field of law, justices can sometimes feel removed from the real world. We often also hear from practicing lawyers that the justices don't really have much understanding of the legal process uh, at the grassroots level or at the local courthouse. Uh, they don't understand um, what it's like to be a, a police officer who has to figure out how to conduct a proper search and what not to do. They're not really very practically oriented people. And while we might not want them on the campaign trail, say, or even on Facebook, Morrow thinks that being so far from the public eye hurts their credibility. They represent you know, at least one branch of government, and uh, right now they're pretty invisible. Uh, as a result, I think the public knows very little about the judiciary. They can't really name many of the justices, um, or if any. I think that's an important part of a democracy. It's, an, it's a form of accountability to make them more visible. Congress finally ended the practice of circuit riding in the early 1900s when the Supreme Court found itself with a backlog of several years' worth of cases. And Congress realized that being a Supreme Court justice was a full-time job. But you can still see vestiges of circuit riding in today's legal system. The second highest court system, the one right below the Supreme Court, is still divided into regional circuits. And just like the early days of the country, each Supreme Court justice is assigned a circuit. Some retired justices, like O'Connor and Souter, occasionally still hear cases in their old assigned districts. Fortunately for them, they don't have to ride a donkey to get there, and the taxpayers pick up the tab. This episode was produced by Nancy Mullane, Shannon Heffernan, Elisa Roth, Caitlin Prest, and Julia Barton. For more on this story and others on the law and the legal system, visit lifeofthelaw.org. And for more stories of quirky and overlooked history, head to footnotepodcast.com.